Good evening. What a wonderful place to be with some beautiful people. Scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 17, 1 through 6. And it reads, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and bedecked with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Thank you, and be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you this evening. Even though the weather is somewhat threatening, we're very happy to have this privilege to come together and worship together. What a joy it is, as Clint mentioned, to be able to worship with good friends and to worship in the place where God is with us as we praise His wonderful name. Tonight, we continue in our Sunday night seminar, and we're looking at this great 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. If you did not get an outline, some of the deacons are stationed at various points here in the auditorium. If you'll raise your hand, they'll get an outline to you, and it'll be a whole lot easier for you if you're following along with me in the outline. Now, I don't always follow the outline. Sometimes I will speak uh, extemporaneously and talk about other things that may not be included in the outline, but the outline is certainly there and will be of help to you as we uh, work on this particular phase of our study. As I mentioned, we're in our Sunday night seminar, and we talk about things on a Sunday night seminar that may be a little different from what a sermon might be, and we go about it in a little more detail. Some, some of it might seem to be a type of lecture for you. Some of it might seem to be a type of sermon for you, and we try to convert, combine these elements so as to best convey the material, and we find ourselves in the great 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, there are five enemies, basically, that face the people of God and the church of God. In chapter 12, you had the old red dragon. We studied him, which, of course, represented Satan and his work against the people of God. Then there was the beast of the sea, tyrannical type of world government that would try to rule by brute force. In chapter 13, verse 1. In chapter 13, verse 11, there's the beast of the land a type of uh, world uh, religious, false religious rule. Sometimes in Revelation, the beast is called the false prophet, and it is representing a world order or a religious order trying to enforce the emperor worship and the worship of the emperor in the first century. And then the fourth enemy of the people of God we learn tonight is the harlot, the great, the Babylon the Great that we learn in chapter 17. And then the fifth enemy of God's people are those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead. They succumb to the pressure 
of the beast of the land, and worshipped the beast of the land and the beast of the sea, which was the purpose of the old dragon, chapter 12. However, in chapter 15 and 16, we studied the demise or the destruction of those who had the mark of the beast on their forehead. And now in chapter 17 and 18, we will see the destruction and the fall of Babylon the Great. And then the, uh, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land will see their destruction in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, the destruction of old Satan himself will be studied very carefully. By the time you get to the f- first half and begin to get into the second half, by chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, you have a lot of comparisons and contrasts. For example, you have the, the two women, the one who gave birth to the child in chapter 12, compared to the scarlet woman, the harlot, in chapter 17. And in this you have uh, Babylon the Great, the old wicked city, compared to the new Jerusalem that we will read about a little bit later in the book of Revelation. This portion of the book of Revelation compares a lot and contrasts a lot. And John wants to see the contrast between these particular matters. And we point that out in an introductory type of way. Some have tried to see the Babylon the Great as Jerusalem, an apostate Palestinian Jerusalem who had rejected Christ, and Judaism, which simply would not accept the Christ. But that really wouldn't give suffering churches in Asia much much consolation. Some see this as representing an apostate Roman Catholic church. But here again, this really doesn't symbolize a Roman church. The woman is described as a harlot. She's not an adulteress. The image would fit an apostate Roman church once married to Christ, but now unfaithful to Christ, more as an adulteress. But she's a harlot. She is a prostitute. Revelation chapter 17. It doesn't seem to fit the Roman Catholic church. What it does seem to fit is the matter of worldliness and the influence that the Roman world has had on the world. Worldliness surely was an enemy of the people of God. And that's naturally what a a harlot would do, would try to seduce the people of God and try to seduce them into doing the will of Satan rather than the will of God. Worldliness has always been a problem. Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, worldliness is condemned. The love of this world is uh, so much uh, uh, an allurement for so many. So, chapter 17 really is talking about this harlot and her seduction, trying to get the people of God to pull away from God and to turn to her and to the, the beast, another enemy of God. Chapter 17 describes her fall. Chapter 18 describes her fall. In chapter 19, we have that wonderful chorus of hallelujahs in verses 1 through 10 as they experience the fall and learn of the fall of the great and terrible beast, the great city of Babylon. So tonight, we study the doom of Babylon. We study this enemy of God's people, Revelation chapter 17. We see how that God is going to deal with this, what she is, what she does, what her role as the enemy of God is. And in turn, we'll make some application to the matter tonight as we have the opportunity uh, at the end. So I invite you to turn to Revelation 17. And I want to spend just a brief moment in exegeting some of these passages and to help us see what's going on in this very interesting 17th chapter. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on, seated on many waters. Now verse 1 is an important verse. Because it tells us in this particular passage that an angel didn't say which one. It said one of the angels that had uh, the seven bowls of judgment. You'll remember that we had seven churches, we had seven seals, we had seven trumpets, we had seven bowls of wrath that were executed upon the people, trying to get them to repent, but they would not repent. One of those angels that had been given from the throne, one of the bowls of judgment, to execute, invited John to come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on the many waters. Now, the great prostitute and the beast that she sits upon, I think it's pretty clear uh, to whom he is referring. Go down to verse 5, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. She's talking about a city there. When you naturally read of Babylon, you're thinking of Old Testament Babylon and the great influence that Old Testament Babylon had. But if that were not enough, I think it's very clear by verse 18 to what he refers. He says in verse 18, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So it's pretty clear what he's getting at here. He's talking about a city. And he's talking about the influence of that city. And what city would naturally come to mind? It would be the city of Rome that has such influence over the waters. To say that she has influence over the waters is to say that she has influence over many people. And as you notice that, uh, go with me to verse 15, and we'll see just right off what the angel tells us the many waters refers to. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so he's naturally talking about the great influence that Rome has over this particular matter. The people. Notice that it's in a group of four. He says um, they are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the way he says that I think is somewhat significant. And the way he records it is somewhat significant. So when he talks about her being seated on many waters is simply to show the influence that she has over the nations, over the peoples. This is a, a very seductive individual trying to get others to involve themselves in her sin. With whom, verse 2, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. They have participated in worldliness and involved themselves in the worldliness that is to be seen on this particular occasion and this image. The acts of immorality that they have involved themselves in, they have cooperated with Rome. Now, Rome basically would allow you to rule your little corner of the world if you would cooperate with them. And a good example of that would be the Herodian family. The Herods had been appointed to be king over Palestine and to be rulers over Palestine. And so long as the Herods would play ball with Rome and respect Roman law and pay Roman taxes, Rome would leave them alone. And that's basically what happened. You see, the kings of the earth who participate with this one, Rome and its influence, are going to be uh, involved in the destruction as well. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Well, he says the spirit carried him into the wilderness. You'll remember the reference to the wilderness in chapter 12. 
In chapter 12, that's where the woman was carried and given protection, even though the dragon was filled with fury because he was not able to destroy the child that she gave birth to. So the woman was carried into the wilderness, and they're protected by God. Well, here in this particular passage, he says that the Spirit carried him into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Well, I don't think that when he says the Spirit took me, that he means the Spirit literally took him physically to another place and another location. I think what he's saying in the passage is that he's still under the influence of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God has revealed this particular matter to him. And he sees this amazing image, this amazing, amazing vi- vision. And I've identified the woman as the city of Rome. And I've identified the, the kings that are involved with her uh, and her, their relationship with the city of Rome. She's described as having seven heads and ten horns. Uh, the woman was arrayed in purple, verse 4, and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, uh, filled with all kinds of refinement. You remember the show uh, some time ago about the rich and the famous, and they would show you the yachts that they lived on and the beautiful homes that they had, and this is the rich, and this is the famous, and this is how the rich... And this is how the famous live. And we all sort of ooh and ah over, look at that. Can you imagine having a boat like that? Or can you imagine having a house like that? Well, that's sort of what we have here. We have the rich and the famous right here, the city of Babylon. And uh, she's arrayed in such uh, refinement as purple and scarlet, which certainly uh, describes the wealthy and the elite of the day. But not only that, describe adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Surely describing the bounty and the wealth and the great influence. Holding in her hand a golden cup. Uh, She holds in her hand a golden cup and the cup is full. And she invites the people of the world to participate in her wantonness and her wickedness. And it seems like a very alluring thing, I'm sure, to the people as they see. Speaking in very symbolic terms. Speaking in very symbolic language. He's trying to convey that the people naturally would want a part of this. They want to be in on the good things that Rome has to offer. But once you look inside that cup, even though the appearance of the cup seems to be very inviting, you see that there's nothing but filth in the cup that she has to offer. A cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now the English Standard Translation here has it describing the word mystery. Let's see if I can sort this out. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Uh, The King James Version translates it that that's the name, mystery. But the English Standard Version and the more modern translations go with the idea that this word mystery describes her, describes her name. Uh, The word mystery in the New Testament is a word which means, you know, we'd never know this on our own. It has to be revealed. Uh, It has been revealed. Uh, You know, it has been concealed up to this point, but now the matter is revealed for us, and we know it. And so the word mystery is an important word in the Bible. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. See, English Standard Version is describing the name, not that mystery is the name. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Her job is seduction. That's what a prostitute does. A harlot tempts and seduces and tries to invite 
And so that's the point of Rome. Rome has done that very thing. Come and take part of our worldliness. Come and take part of our ungodliness. Be a part of this. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And she was drunk on their blood because they wouldn't take part of her invitation. So because of that, she torments them and she punishes them and, and she murders them. And for that reason, she's done that without equivocation. She has done that without hesitation. Because you will not pay, play ball with me. Because you will not be a part of this evil lifestyle and this wickedness. You're going to die. And we'll put all kinds of pressure on you to get you to yield to it. But because they wouldn't, they in turn were tormented and martyred for the same. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And a lot of times the writers, when they write about these passages, they'll talk about, well, why was John marveling so greatly over that? And the, and the text is very specific here. It was a great amazement to him. It's a wonderful marvel. And some have tried to say, well, he marveled expecting to see the city in flames and ruin, when really he sees the city in power and wealth. And he was anticipating the destruction. For after all, he said in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. So he's probably looking for her judgment. He's probably looking for her downfall and her demise. But what does he see? A very powerful city, a very powerful image, filled with commerce, filled with comings and goings, filled with ungodliness and worldliness. However, I'd rather choose to think that it might be that there's so much wealth there and so much grandeur there that he's amazed at it. He probably, writing from the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner in a prisoner of war camp, is amazed at the wealth and he's amazed at the greatness and the power which is seen from these particular matters. And so he says, I marvel greatly. You see him in Revelation chapter 17, and I'm trying to analyze some of these words and these phrases, and I'm in verse 6. And in verse 6, he says, I was amazed at what I saw here. Now, whatever the reason was that he was amazed, it certainly was a great amazement for him. But the angel said to me in verse 7, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And we would think, well, you know, this will be self-explanatory, right? Wrong. Uh, The plot thickens. If you thought this was a little complicated, hang on. It gets worse. Uh, It gets more complicated. If you can understand it, please tell me when we get through here. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have, been, have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Well, I'm in verse 8. Well, what does he mean by that? It's a very interesting description that he gives, this matter of was and is not and will come. And I think rather than to get, embroil ourselves into endless and I'm going to say fruitless discussion. The best way to look at these passages is to simply say evil is always going to be with us. It may be the Roman Empire now, but what's it going to be next? God's going to show us about the destruction of the Roman Empire. 
But then what's going to be the next evil anti-God, anti-Christian system that rises up out of the abyss? Notice where the beast came from. He says, the beast that you saw was and is not. What does he mean by was and is not? It was here, now it's dead, okay, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Well, what does he mean by that? I think the best way to understand the passage is to think of it from the standpoint of there's always going to be some anti-God, anti-Christian position, anti-God, anti-Christian religion, anti-God, anti-Christian government that will arise to try to thwart the people of God and undermine the will of God. After all, even though the nation and empire of Rome falls, what happens next? Well, another empire arises. And then when that one falls, another one will come along. And that's the best way to look at this particular matter. You know, there's no way that I can pinpoint exactly what he's talking about here, and no one can say with definiteness what this is about. It goes to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. You know, those who are not faithful to the Word of God and and they have compromised themselves by worshiping the beast, they'll follow along with it. Now, this calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman is seated. You know, it continues to get thicker here. And, of course, I think it's pretty easy for us to identify the seven hills of Rome. Rome, historically, has been the empire that was built on seven hills, and um, that is a historical fact. But he goes on to say in verse 10, if it was all that, then that would be okay. There are also seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. What? What's happening here? You know, this is hard to figure out. Uh, What shall we say? And commentaries love to talk about these particular matters, and it is sort of a clue for us that something is because verse 9 says this calls for a mind with wisdom. And so there is some kind of clue there that he is giving them in the first century. Most commentaries will come along and they say, all right, we got this figured out. These seven kings, those are empires. That's what that is. Those are empires. And uh, some have come and some have gone. For example, We'll start off with the Egyptian Empire and the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Greek Empire. Now, there one is, he says, well, that will be the Roman Empire for their day and time. The other has not yet come. Well, that'll be a Roman Empire made Christian by Constantine. And then there's an eighth. Well, that will be some kind of anti-Christian government that's somewhere off in the future. Notice how he describes it there. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. They look upon the verse as a prophecy about empires of the world. Now, if you don't like that, we've got another theory for you. Uh, we'll call them seven kings of Rome. And even though the Roman leaders were emperors and not really kings, we'll say that these have to do with uh, the seven rulers of Rome. There are also seven kings. Well, these are Roman kings, they say. These are the Roman emperors. So where will we start on this? Shall we start with Julius Caesar and start finding the seven? Well, we can't start with Julius Caesar. We're not really sure he was an emperor to begin with or a king. Now, when will we, where will we start counting the seven up? 
Well, I think we'll start counting with Augustus Caesar, they'll say. And then we'll go to Tiberius and Gaius Caligula and Claudius and then Nero. Now, the one is has got to be Vespasian. And then the others has not yet come. That ought to be Titus. And then the eighth must be Domitian by the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. And on and on and on and on. And nobody's going to be able to nail this down. Nobody's going to be able to say with absolute certainty, this is that. So somebody comes along and says, well, I believe it's this. Well, I nod my head politely and I smile. I say, well, maybe you're right. And somebody else will come along and tell me, well, maybe it's that. And I'll nod my head and smile politely and I'll say, well, maybe you're right. I know one thing about what it means. Verse 14. I think we should focus on what we know rather than what we don't know. We should focus on the major things rather than the minor things. The major thing is verse 14. They, whoever they are, it doesn't matter to me who they are. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Now that I know. I don't care what any God, any Christian system it might be. It really doesn't matter to me exactly who identifies with the seven heads and the ten horns. I don't care who it is. I know one thing. Now, I say I know it. They will make war with the Lamb and they will lose. There is no way that you can win and fight against God, whomever it might be. I have a friend out in California that sent me a license plate cover. I thought it was very clever. On the license plate cover, and he called me about it and asked me, did you get it? I said, yeah, I got it. Thank you for that. I'm going to put it on the front end of my pickup truck. <clears throat> on the license plate cover, it says, I read the book. And then at the bottom of the license plate cover, it says, God wins. And I said, you know, I like that. I've read the book, and God wins. And that's verse 14. However you want to interpret these particular passages, Though there can be no definite dogmatic stand taken, this means that. We have to say in verse 14, the Lamb will conquer them. After all, is that not the very point of the book of Revelation? They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Amen. Now, I can understand that. Now, that is the point that I should get from this particular matter. They will be destroyed. God and his people will win. By verse 15, he's telling us of his purpose, and I find it a very interesting paragraph. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, as I mentioned a moment ago, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And I think all God is saying in that regard is, you know, once they see the downfall of Rome, they pile on and try to grab for what they can. And they strip away all the resources that Rome has, take away all the assets that Rome has. I see this as the destruction of ancient Rome a wicked enemy of the people of God. And what is he saying in verse 16? Other than they're going to pile on. 
Uh, when they see Rome going down, they're going to jump on and try to take as much as they can from Rome. They'll strip her of everything they can. And look how Rome is. Now, John was amazed at the wealth of Rome. He said, when I saw this uh, scarlet woman riding the beast, uh, I saw and s- I was so amazed at that. I marveled at that, at how great the city was, how great the empire was, how powerful the empire was. But that powerful empire was coming down, and the people, the kings, would rush in and grab whatever they can for themselves and devour her and destroy her. And the way he writes it in this particular passage, verse 16, he says it in such descriptive terms, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. It will be completely destroyed. And that's the way it is with every ungodly system in time. They will be destroyed. They cannot fight God and win. And you can see how that would be a great source of encouragement for people who were suffering in the end. They would almost look and say, look how powerful this is. Who are we to win against such a powerful system like Rome and the Roman Empire? God's on their side. Now, I find verse 17 very interesting. I think I see this in other parts of the Bible. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. He put it in their hearts to do it. He used those wicked people to bring about his purpose. You see that happening a lot in the pages of the Bible, whether it be an old Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in the ancient of times or an old wicked king, Pharaoh, God could use them. Look how he used the Jews. Even though it was a heinous crime to sacrifice and kill and murder an innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, still God used that for his glory and for our salvation. He used their wickedness to bring about good for us. And only God can do that. And God says, I'm doing that here. I put it in their hearts to fulfill my purpose. My purpose was to bring judgment upon them. For the cup of my wrath is full, and I'm going to bring them down. It doesn't matter how powerful they may be. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, I have to admit, I don't know everything about Revelation chapter 17. I don't don't believe it's very clear in some respects. But I think we can know certain things. I know we can. One thing that I can know from Revelation 17 is that sometimes evil may appear to be so appealing, but it brings disaster. Uh, Whatever you want to make out of the ten heads and seven horns, and the seven heads and the ten horns, uh, and, and the kings and the scarlet woman riding the beast, I know this. Evil can appear to be very appealing but it will lead you down a path to destruction. Notice that passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 22. Flee youthful lust. 
Nat was teaching us Wednesday night about the life of Joseph. How that in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph, an innocent man, flees the advances of a wicked woman, Potiphar's wife, and he would not involve himself in that. Joseph was one who knew evil's going to lead me to destruction. And Joseph would say, how can I do this sin against God? I can't do it. He was a person who could see through the problem of sin. Evil seems very appealing to us, but yet we must see through it and understand that its glamour is short-lived. In fact, we must be able to see the difference between glamour and goodness. We must be able to see the difference between what is fleeting and what is forever. When we do that, then we'll realize that sin is not irresistible. Sometimes we think, well, we just have to do it. No, we don't. Armed with faith in the Word of God, we can say no to sin. It may seem very clear to us, this is what I want to do or this is what I'd like to do, but we've got to be able to see through the appealing, irresistible pull and tug of temptation. This was a scarlet woman. The scarlet woman was enticing and seducing the world to imbibe and to involve themselves with her in her worldliness as she was offering the sins of worldliness before the world, and they were doing that. But Christian people will say no to that because they know that evil is not always irresistible. In fact, if we see evil for what it really is, it is repulsive, and we ought to be able to see that it's repulsive. Revelation 17 teaches me that evil sometimes appears to be invincible. It can appear to be appealing. It can appear to be irresistible. Sometimes it's so widespread it seems to be invincible. But I know that God will punish the sin and punish those who are involved in sin. Hebrews 11 and 25 tells us that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He thought... He realized, even though there was a great temptation there perhaps, he would not succumb to that particular matter. Hebrews 11 and verse 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 25. Notice Hebrews 11:25. It may be very appealing. It may be very irresistible. It may appear to be invincible. But yet here is a man who gives us an example of saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there. I'm going to flee the useful lust. Because I know, Romans 6 and 23, that sin will bring us down to death. In 1 John chapter 5, or 1 John chapter 2, I'd like to read a passage there that I think will help us understand the true nature of sin and how to resist it. That's the lesson I want to take away from Revelation 17. Now, I remember when I was a young boy, and I was going to college, and I was in Bible classes in college, and I was studying Hebrew, and I was studying Greek, and I really thought a lot of myself back in those days, and we loved to debate these Bible passages, and we loved to argue, and we loved to try to match wits back and forth, but that really is a fruitless pursuit when you're involved in a passage like this. Now, I'm not certainly not above standing for the truth of the Scripture. And I will debate uh, the truth against error any time. And I, pray, I stand prepared to defend the truth of God's Word. But I'm not interested in just an endless haggle 
that is fruitless. And that can become that way in the book of Revelation if you're not careful. What I need to take out of this particular passage is something like this. 1 John chapter 2 and 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, now watch it, verse 17, abides forever. I've read for you First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. That's what I take out of Revelation chapter 17. I take the need to remain faithful to God and say no to the allurements of the world, which are strong and powerful and tempting. But yet, we love God more, and we love eternity with God more than anything that the world has to offer. If you've been moved out of obedient faith to repent of sin and to confess your faith before others, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, I urge you to do it tonight. And do not live for this world, but live for that which is eternal. Do not be tempted by the temporary nature of the pleasures of sin, Hebrews 11.25, but devote yourself to life eternal with God by being an obedient and faithful child of God added to the church of the living God. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?